Guys, welcome to the podcast. This is going to be a super fun episode with Andy Mill and his son, Nikki. And I was able to go up and spend some time with them at their home in Aspen, Colorado. And we just had a ball. We were out casting fly rods out in the grass and in the yard and chatting. And he gave me a tour of the house and just have an unbelievable view of the Aspen Ski uh, area, Aspen Highlands, uh, Buttermilk and Snowmass. Just beautiful views there of the Maroon Bells. Um, mountains uh, out of their windows. Uh, a little background on Andy Mill. He was born in Fort Collins, and uh, in the early years, he moved with his family to Laramie, Wyoming, before relocating to Aspen, Colorado in the early 60s. Uh, Andy was an accomplished junior racer and made the U.S. ski team in 1971 and 74. Uh, Andy competed at the World Championships in Switzerland, and for the next seven years when not injured, he was America's top downhill racer. In the mid-70s, Andy was nicknamed the Wild Hund, which means the wild dog by Europeans for his gritty style and appearance. Andy's finest hour was probably in the 1976 Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria, where he placed sixth in downhill, which you're going to hear a story about this which was won dramatically by Franz Klammer of Austria. Mills' finish was the best by any American in uh, men's downhill in 24 years. Following that Olympics in 1976, uh, Andy Mill won the downhill at the U.S. Alpine Championships. Two, two years later, he competed in the 1978 World Championships in Garmisch, West Germany, and the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, where he was 16th in the downhill. His racing career ended in January 1981 after a serious crash and a train run uh, in Switzerland. In 1988, Andy was presented with the U.S. Olympic Spirit Award in recognition for overcoming adversity in the 1976 Olympic Games where he placed sixth in the downhill, even though injured. His lower right leg was so badly bruised from the training injury that he could not stand without pain the day before the race. In order to compete, he froze his leg in the snow minutes before entering the starting gate. After retiring from ski racing in 1981, Mill has worked as a ski racing commentator with ESPN, NBC, ABC, and CBS. He has a syndicated show in major ski areas in the U.S. entitled Ski with Andy Mill, which he hosts, writes, and produces. After his ski racing career concluded, Andy Mill found another passion, tarpon fishing. A lifelong fisherman, he brought a similar level of dedication and perfection to fishing. Although admittedly he struggled for quite a few years, he eventually mastered the art of tarpon fishing and went on to become the only second angler to win five Gold Cup tarpon tournaments and be a Triple Crown winner in the tarpon fishing Gold Club holly and golden fly mill has also hosted an outdoor show on the outdoor life network as well as fish for a number of fish including marlin sailfish bonefish permit and others on july 30th 1988 in boca raton florida andy mill married tennis star chris everett whom he had met 19 months earlier at a new new year's eve party at the hotel jerome in aspen after 18 years of marriage and three sons They later divorced in 2006. In this episode, you're going to get to hear me discuss all about ski racing and fly fishing and bow hunting elk with Andy and his son, Nikki. I was very privileged to be able to go up and spend some time with these guys, and I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode, so I look forward to bringing it to you. 
Uh, before we get to the episode, I just want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, uh, The Gear Shop. Cody Nelson, my friend of 20 plus years, is the optics manager there. If you have any optical needs at all, make sure to get a hold of Cody at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. I also want to remind you that GoHunt Insider, there's a 30-day free trial going on right now. You can be a, have full access and just like you're a member of the Insider uh, for free, go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Follow the prompts. You'll be able to sign up for free and get a 30-day free trial. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. I encourage you to go to the website, kuiu.com, to find out more about Kuyu. I also want to thank Phonescope. Use the jscott19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there at phonescope.com. That's the device that I use on my iPhone X to do all my digiscoping, uh, all get all my videos, and take uh, the long-range photos. And I also want to thank onxmaps.com. If you go to onxmaps.com, use the jscott19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount. Guys, let's get right to this episode. I appreciate you guys supporting this podcast. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I am here at the home of Andy Mill and Nikki Mill, and we're in Aspen, Colorado. We've been out in the driveway doing some casting out in the grass and getting some tips from the casting master. And um, it's great to come up here. It's kind of funny how it's taken a couple years. I've wanted to have you, Andy, on my podcast. And Nikki, you reached out uh, about a month ago and said, hey, Dad and I are starting a podcast. We want to have you up to the house. And I said, that's kind of funny you say that because I've wanted to have a conversation with your dad on my podcast for a long time. So here we are. Uh, awesome stuff. Andy Mill, good to have you. Well, thank you. And thank you. And, uh, you know, welcome up to the house. Yeah, for sure. Nikki, good to have you here. Yeah, thank you. It was perfect timing, you know, when I reached out because it was like like minds think alike. So For sure. Yeah. For sure. You know, um, unbelievable up here. We've got views uh, and the house here that we're at. Uh, we are looking across at Aspen Mountain, Aspen Highlands. Uh, you've also got snow mass off in the distance. You've got buttermilk. Uh, you've got Pyramid Peak. You, I mean, basically have the maroon bells right out your front window. Just an amazing place. Uh, Andy, how long have you been here in this valley? Oh, God. Well, since 1960, my family moved here. I started fourth grade, uh, graduated from high school in 71, and right after that, my parents moved to Denver, and I stayed. Um, and I'll, you know, it's been my home from the you know first day we drove into town and I'll always call it home I'll always have a place here and and I very much doubt I'll ever leave this house it's just so unbelievable it's magical as you can see it is the view is just spectacular and you know it's kind of a cloudy day and to be able to see those kind of storms rolling in off the mountains is amazing and I'm sure ski season seeing it snow and such although you're probably down in Florida as soon as the snow starts to fly yeah once it gets a little nasty in October I'm ready to get out of here I've scraped enough windows and you know interestingly enough after all these injuries I've had being a professional skier and and all the other things I've got hurt doing uh, it's not so easy in the winter when it's you know when it's cold and nasty. Um, the bones ache a little bit. Yeah, you know, and it's not it's, it's not like I really look forward to going skiing anymore. You know, we were speaking earlier in the kitchen. I mean, having done it for a living for a long time, it's like practicing shooting your bow without a target. 
Right. If it feels yeah. good, you see the arrow go through the air. I can feel an arc turn, but without a clock involved, it's like, you know, uh, unless it's really pretty and sunny in March, uh, you're not going to find me out there. <laughs> and we're going to, I want to dive into kind of the early years of you growing up here in Aspen and some of your ski racing and what have you. Um, you're also a multiple world champion tarpon fisherman and uh, kind of want to talk about the transition from, you know, just being totally focused on skiing. Although you told me up there in the kitchen that, you know, you've fished ever since you were a little kid kind of want to talk about that and then Nikki I want to talk about uh with you with growing up with your dad having such a passion for skiing and such a passion for the outdoors kind of how that's had an impact on you uh it was so cool out there in the grass uh you know to, to get some casting lessons and some tips uh from you both on casting and then have Andy hand the rod over to you Nikki and just look like a dream out there casting showing that underhand cast and what have you um, just uh, just cool I'm sure to grow up having a dad um, that really has passion for what he does oh yeah I mean I couldn't ask for a better better father figure he's my best friend he's a mentor he's everything you that, know that's I awesome. spend more time with him than anyone else in the world and you know we love to do the same things um elk hunt tarpon fish trout fish hike mountain bike everything golf everything so he's my best friend and i i love him dearly yeah i'm gonna cry <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome uh it's it's just so cool to be sitting here with you guys we are sitting in um this is kind of a guy's room i like it we've got you know treadmills and we've got some weights and we got dart boards and you see where you've you've uh, robin hooded some arrows up here we've of course got a bunch of fly rods and dead elk dead elk and you guys you already showed me some of the house some of the bulls that you guys have been together and some that you've shot andy um, you both uh, really like archery elk hunting. Um, I'm, my question would be for you, Andy, when you started out uh, as a kid, when did the passion for hunting come or did it come later? It came much later. Um, you know, I would say growing up here in Aspen, it was, you know, on a daily basis, you could do so many different things in the summer. In shooting a twenty-two, and the ground squirrels were a huge passion. I'd get a box of a hundred shells, and I'd go whack Wipe a bunch of out. gophers, and I'd go to the river and whack a bunch of fish. So, you know, whether you were hunting for gophers uh, or hunting for fish, it was in my DNA. Mm -hmm. um, I killed an elk um, with a rifle, but that didn't do much. But once I saw the whole bugling, talking to the animal aspect, uh, that really flipped my light switch. And very similar to fishing for big tarpon, um, a lot of people don't realize that you do speak to fish. You, I can talk to that tarpon. Nikki can tell that tarpon to come eat this bug if you know what you're doing. Um, the only difference between a tarpon and a big elk is an elk is a mammal and it's screaming at you. But it's the same thing. When you throw that fly out there and you start talking to the fish, He's coming, and you know when he gets cross-eyed, he's going to bite your bug. And when you hear that animal screaming back at you in the woods, as you know, that's a whole... Magical. It, it takes that whole hunting plane to a different level. Yeah. And of all the things that I've done, and I, and I hate to like short shoot or short side my ski career because skiing at 100 miles an hour for a living, I kind of just kind of poo-poo that. But if I take a closer look at it, if you can imagine sliding down the side of a mountain... 
like try to make turns around the fr the frozen back edge of a basketball going 80 miles an hour. That's what my life was like for a long time. But it's been so, my life has been so removed now from that because I'm almost, I'm closing in on 70. It's like I just take that for granted. But at the time it was huge. But now my time over the last number of years was catching big tarp. And, 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 and when I got into tournament fishing, that brought on a whole different level of, of excitement because I had, I had a chance to do something well again on the backside of being a ski racer. Mm -hmm. But when I started hunting bull elk, that was really so exciting. It's, it's, it, it's much more exciting to me than catching a big 150 pound tarpon not necessarily because i've done it so much and i've caught a lot of big fish it's just because it is a mammal that is speaking with you and you're trying to kill it with a sharp stick and you know 20 yards and they're big they're big yeah <laughs> it's, i totally agree i yeah. mean everything else is below archery elk hunting for me do you think though like what you were saying andy do you think nikki that you've been exposed to it too much that elk is almost held up on a on a pedestal up here because you have seen tarpon fishing at the highest level and it's kind of like you've I don't want to belittle it but been there done that maybe a little bit but here too is the effort and the time and the miles and the the nights spent you know on the side of a hillside and and, and the effort put in to to being successful in the woods elk hunting is just so much greater than um tarpon fishing i mean on a great day of tarpon fishing you can you can hook 10 and and catch five right i mean you're talking about harvesting one bull a year right with with the otc tags if you're, if you're really lucky if you're really lucky yeah yeah for sure i you you, you said something that made me think of a question but i kind of want to dive into the early days of your ski racing to try and get dig in a little bit and see what makes you you whether it be skiing whether it be tarpon fishing or you know chasing bull elk what was it like growing up being a ski racing kid i think for the most part i was a pain in the ass <laughs> i think, <laughs> that everybody. I think it drove my parents crazy it drove my friends crazy because you are so connected to speed i was hyper and I didn't, I, I didn't have the attention span to stay in school. I was always looking out of the window. And on my side sheets of my work papers, I was always drawing slalom courses and racing you know, turns with my pencil down the page until I could get out of school at three. Um, I was tying, I learned how to tie flies at a young age. And the river really captured you know, uh, my being, um, as did baseball and football. But growing up in Aspen, I was just a, kind of a little, little wild child. And it was great because... Aspen is a, was such a great town to grow up in. For the most part, it's quite benign, especially back you know in the '60s. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew each other. There was the only paved street in town was Main Street, so it was a very small little cow town. So it was nothing town. like what it, it is no now. Nothing, and and so for me, my connection to all this was, I just liked being outside, and I liked catching fish, and then I liked killing stuff, and you know I liked being a part of, of of what was going on whether it be a part of the football team the baseball team you know the ski team so were you but, did you play all the sports i did but i would say the, the the difference that i had was i took it really personal how so in the fact that i wasn't just there to be a part of the team i wanted 
you know, to throw. I wanted to be a pitcher. I was a pitcher. I played third base. So the pitcher controls the game. I wanted to go into the water and read that water and catch the fish. I wanted to be the lead player of my life. And when I started doing the ski thing, I wasn't just out there trying to have a good time. I was trying to win. Be the fastest. I wanted to be the fastest. Yeah. And I think that um, that doesn't make me anything better or worse. It's just that's the way I was. And what in the, in the long term, I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to do a lot of different things. But I think the fishing really gave me a second chance to do something well because as a skier, once I started making um, skiing the national circuit and then racing in Europe and making the Olympic team and getting hurt, I didn't win at the level I wanted to. Yeah, I, I did do well. I won the national championships. I was the number one ranked American. I skied in two world championships. I got sixth in the Olympics, but I didn't win. Um, in retrospect... Um, I know I could have probably been a whole lot better for a lot of different reasons. So when I got into fishing and I had great mentors, I didn't really have a great mentor. And I don't want to place blame on anybody else for my lack of success. But I wasn't smart enough to really understand and, and know how to get it on my own. But in fishing, I had great mentors. I came to the saltwater game being able to fish. I had good eyes. I had good balance. I was an athlete. I could stand on a boat in the ocean when it was rocking and, and, and it was rough. And I had the determination to win, uh, which I don't think a lot of guys bring to that game. They're not great world-class athletes. Um, and, and, I th and I think that I had really good vision uh, and great mentors. And so when I started tarpon fishing and tournament fishing, I was possessed. I was absolutely, I, I, I think I spent 10 years without sleep. I was so possessed in winning. And, and that was probably a part of my DNA when I was a younger kid growing up here in Aspen, wanting to win. But I never got to that, that place where I, where I could dominate until I became a fisherman. That was a little long-winded, sorry. No, I like that. So the intensity is what I hear. You're an yeah. intense person, and whatever you do, you do 110%. When was the first time with all of that in your ski racing when you went down a hill and you said, I'm good at this? Probably the first 10 feet I slid on a pair of skis. So as soon as it, it happened right away for you. Yeah, and was it, it or you don't. It's, it's, it's interesting in that um, my ex-wife, Nikki's mom, uh, Chris Everett, the tennis player. One of the best ever. Ever. Yep. I took her skiing for the first time, and, and she did not like the sensations of sliding. So she grew up in a very conservative family. You can take a look at how she played tennis. She was a baseline player. She was not that serve and volley or control. She was controlled, right. but she was the best at it. Yep. But in skiing, I asked her, you know, she would slide six inches and stab the snow to stop. She didn't like sliding. I said, well, if you don't like to feel the wind in your face and that sensation of sliding, you're not going to you're not going to see. And she was still, you know, playing tennis at the time, so she didn't want to get hurt. But if you're like Nicky, I, I could do anything with him, and he's going to gravitate to it. So he raced motorcycles, and he wanted to see big air. He wanted to catch big fish. He was, he's like a mini-me. I mean, the other two sons that I have, they're great athletes. And like the old adage, and I like to use it, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But Nicky has been drinking this water that has been exuded from my, my life since day one. Mini-me, I like that. <laughs> Nikki, speaking about that, growing up with parents that are phenomenal athletes and, you know, famous people, um, you know, growing up and being a, 
when did you realize that you were also a great athlete yourself? Was there ever a point where you're like, uh, I can do some of this stuff. This is awesome. Um, probably from a young age. I mean, from a really young age, we were racing motocross and playing tennis, playing soccer. And I kind of was, I mean, I'm not trying to brag, but I was up there with some of the best that I was competing with. Sure. And so, um, at, at a young age, I really didn't know any better. They just kind of threw me in the ropes and I just tried my best. And <laughs> But you liked it. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I loved it. I, I, I really loved motocross riding. I thought that taught me a lot. And, um, it, 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 uh, I mean, going to the track every Thursday and Friday nights as a family, it was a great family bonding experience as well as, as competition and, um, and racing in general. So, um, yeah, I thought motocross racing was, was very beneficial in my younger years. And was it one of those things that since motocross racing, was that kind of your sport? In other words, you know, having your mom be a tennis player, dad be a skier and a fisherman, did you feel like, man, I can just light my hair on fire and ride this thing as fast as it'll go, and this is kind of my deal? No. Not at all? No, not at all. It was just sort of what my brothers and I did. We, we love to go fast, and we love to you know, be competitive with each other and be competitive with other people. But it wasn't, that wasn't my passion. It really wasn't. And, um, it's just something that I love to do. I, I don't know if I would have recognized if I had a passion back then. I mean, at that I, age, yeah, at that age, I was doing so many different things and being introduced to so many different sports that I just kind of did them. I would, I mean, I would say once my father got me into fishing, that's when, I realized, okay, I, I can do this the rest of my life. That's cool. This is my passion. I think that's one thing about fishing, too, from a physical standpoint, is fishing is one of those things that you can do for a long period of time. It's For longevity-wise, you can do it a long time, which is cool. It's really cool. You know, and, and uh, we were speaking out on the lawn about, you know, my passions for turf, or for trout fishing which are still, you know, quite vivid, but my passion is as much hanging out and watching him fish. That's what you were saying. And watching the river uh, marinate. Mm -hmm. You know, you get there early before the hatch starts to begin, and I love to sit, sit on the bank and just listen to the water and, and watch, watch the water and watch, you know, watch the, the timing of the river and the timing of the bugs. And when it gets right, you step in there and you start having some fun. Watch it come alive. Yeah, but I, w but I would say until recently, I was never that guy. I was the guy that would want to get there early and catch as many as I could. Right. Uh, and then I became kind of like the big fish guy. And, and that's really kind of a story in the life of a fisherman, mm -hmm. the three stages. When, you're, when you first get in, you would just want to catch more than everybody. Right. Then you want to catch the biggest, mm -hmm. and then you just want to be there. I'm kind of at that third stage there now where I want to go look for a big fish, yeah, and I want to catch them on dry flies or whatever, and I want to catch a lot of fish. But more importantly, I just want to go hang out with him and, and, and be on the water. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that yesterday. You asked me, I think we, we after we fished yesterday, you asked me, you said, when you're fishing with all those people on the river in the frying pan, are, are you competitive with with other people or do you want to catch every fish right in front of them i said hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he does he does <laughs> oh yeah of course and you're not you, you've you were that way i'm sure but 
You're not that way anymore. I, I I still feel that once in a while, but then I fight the urge, and and then I and when I start to get all ramped up and get frustrated, I think to myself, it's not worth it. Right. I can enjoy so much more of this day by not being aggravated. Do you think there was a time when you couldn't go to the river and kind of just let everything unfold, and then just wait till the hatch started going, wait till a few fish start rising? Were you the type of guy that went to the river? First head you saw, you were over there trying to pound them on the head? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I skied at 100. I, yeah. was, I, I was trying to fish at 100. Right. I'll tell you a, a funny story. Is, uh, I got hurt. It was, it was in 81. Uh, it was the year after the Olympics. Or the yeah uh, the year the year after the Olympics I got I, I got hurt and I tweaked my knee and I had to come back to South Lake Tahoe, and Dr. Stedman did a, uh, a microfracture on my knee, and then I was going to return to Europe and race which I did, but I was in the hospital he just operated on my knee and I had some some fly fishing stuff out there that I left at a friend's house, so I get he just operated on me. I get back from the uh, recovery room and I get out, got out of bed and I went to the bathroom and I'm stomping on, on my leg. I had no pain. I go, wow, Steady's really got this down, <laughs> you know? So I just left the hospital. I didn't even check out. I just left the hospital, got in my car, went and got my fishing rod and went to the river. And I was down there fishing. Not good. And about, about an hour later, my leg, oh my God, my leg started hurting. Now, what do you do? Go check back into the hospital and ring the buzzer for another shot of I'm morphine, back. you know? And I was staying with Dr. Stedman when I got there. And, I, and so I just went to his house and uh, he got back, you know, from operating that evening. He goes, what are you doing here? Unreal. But yeah, uh, I was a crazy fisherman, and I'd get there and fish as early as I could to as late as I could, and and just rack up the numbers. You grew up skiing on this mountain, going 100 miles an hour as fast as you could go. The equipment that the guys are skiing on now, compared to what you were skiing on, talk a little bit about that. Well. Um, the skis we were skiing on, downhill skis, there were 220 centimeters, so in very much, very little side cut. So they were meant to go straight. So turning on the icy uh, courses in Europe with those skis were really, it was difficult to, to really carry the, the speed through the full radius of a turn. But if you look at the power of the guys now, so a downhill ski might be like a 218. Um, the, G, the the side cut is so radical in the G forces that they can it's like five Gs they they uh, they build in the apex of a corner now, and what they can do on, on solid ice is just absolutely amazing. I mean, you take that pane of glass right there, and and make it three thousand feet long. That's what they're skiing down. Yeah. And the ski does not slip. That's the power that these guys have in their legs to hold that edge going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour around a bend of solid ice. It, to me, I, I'm fascinated by these guys. And Michaela Schifrin from Vail and what she's done and the success that she's had, you don't see athletes like this come around very often. You know, I, I played golf in high school and in college, and, and I also see the correlation you know, that's probably the sport that I'm closest to. And the athletes these days and the strength that they have and, the, you know, how far they hit the ball is also amazing. I'm sure when you look at, um, you know, the skiing stuff, I'm sure when your mom looks at some of the tennis stuff, she just is blown away at the strength and the power and the skill. I still think, you know, you take, you know, Jack Nicholas and give him the equipment today and he's going to be a world beater. You take someone like yourself 
you know, you take... You gravitate to that new generation. Sure. For sure, absolutely. You, well, you, you gravitate to the new generation, but what I'm saying is the old, the older school guys, I still believe Jack Nicholas. if you give him Tiger's equipment, would be unbelievable. Probably. Today? I, th- I think he'd be unbelievable. He's 80. <laughs> I doubt it. You get what I'm saying? No, I mean... Yeah. No. Oh, if, yeah. If he could use equipment well, that they're using today. Well, look... In his prime. Let's take a look at what they did and the scores they shot. You know, yeah, they didn't hit the ball quite as far as they do today. I mean, nothing, in, you know, compared because of the shafts and, yeah. and the ball speed that comes off that, you know, the old persimmon head. Um, but if you take a look at some of the guys that are on the seniors tour, that's a that's a pretty close assessment here. Mm-hmm. And here you had Watson almost winning the British Open that at the age awesome. of sixty just a few years ago. Oh man, I wanted that so, so bad. So you're you're so right in yeah. that aspect. Yeah. So the Olympics. You were one of the best in the US. You won the national championship and you go into the Olympics. You were hurt. Talk about that from a standpoint of wanting it so bad, but your body was hurt. And not that other people didn't have to deal with injuries as right. well. Sure. But talk about how you you wanted it so bad up here, but did you know that, you know, it just... Well, what happened was um, I had two knee operations, operations before the Olympics of 76 that summer. So that whole year, I was basically skiing on one leg. Um, and I like to preface this story in the fact that, you know, I got sixth in that Olympics on a leg that I couldn't walk on. But I want to preface this by saying I don't think I would have finished that high or done that well had I not gotten hurt. Like the old adage is be careful of an injured athlete Mm -hmm. because now they focus that much harder. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was there was no snow in 76, so they had to bring all the snow in off the Brenner Pass with helicopters. So it was basically a ribbon of snow from start to finish. And then the Austrian army, they sprayed it with water and they side-slipped it and, 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 uh, and made it a ribbon of ice. So we had a small little um, rope toe at the top of the lift, maybe 150 yards long. And that's all you had to warm up skiing-wise because there was no snow in the mountain. And near the bottom of the finish, or near the bottom of the downhill, there's a big off-camber left-hand turn that was solid ice. In the very first training run, there were like four of us that crashed, you know, into the fencing on that corner. And I had such a bad boot top injury, I could not walk. I couldn't put a ski boot on. But I had gotten fifth in the pre-Olympics, so I knew the course well. And I was on crutches, and I thought, well, heck, I can go up on one ski and watch training. Because I knew the course. But you needed to have three runs to race for some crazy reason. So I watched a few of the runs two days in a row, and I'd go up with um, one, you know, with one ski and one ski boot and an after ski boot. I'd side slip and watch everybody train. And in the second to the last training run, I went out of the starting gate on one ski and stopped. So I haven't seen this, the finish gate yet. And so the, for the last training run in the Olympic Village that night, I looked across and I saw a cardboard box that our uniforms came in, and I cut a piece of cardboard. Uh, off this box and it was like a jet stick it was a long narrow piece of cardboard and I doubled it and put a piece of adhesive tape around it and stuck it into my ski boot and I thought wow if I sit back this might help distribute the pressure at the back of my ski boot and I told the coaches I said you know if I can't 
get to the finish gate in the, in the last training run, you know, I, I'm out. And so the next day I went to the starting gate. I knew I couldn't use, get an injection because I wouldn't be able to lift my toes. So I froze my leg. I took my sock off and buried my leg in the snow and froze it to the point that I couldn't feel it. And then I just put the uh, cardboard strip in, into my ski boot, buckled up, and took off. And I remember about halfway down, my legs just started killing me. But I thought, God, it's so steep and fast. I don't know if I can stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought, shoot, just try to ski faster. To take my mind off my injured leg. And I was ninth in the last training run. And the opening ceremonies were that afternoon. So I was back, I was back in the race. And the next day, I just froze my leg that much longer and um, missed a bronze medal by, by three-tenths of a second. Man. So it was, it was a real highlight of my career because, yeah, you know, to look back on a, on a career and say you skied, you're an Olympian, that says a lot. Mm -hmm. Because remember, there are only four athletes from this country that represent this country in the Olympics. Correct. So it's a small group of guys that can qualify for the Olympics. It's amazing. And, you know, so, but to finish sixth in the Olympics, I mean, some people know I finished sixth, but more people know, I think, that I was, a, you know, a good skier, and uh, quite a few people know I'm probably a better fisherman. How was that to transition from being known as a skier to being known as a fisherman? I love it. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, Nikki can attest to this. I mean, um, and he's well known too because he's finished in the top top three in all the big tournaments. I'm nobody compared to you. Yeah, no, but <laughs> you're you're a great fisherman. I'll, I'll put you up against anybody. I mean, to watch this guy fish is really a sight to be seen. Yeah, just watching him cast. You wanted to hand him the rod. He's like, "No, nah, it's okay." Yeah. And then he picked it up. I'm like, "Holy smokes!" Yeah, no, he's great. Um, but to be, you know, look, I'm very fortunate. I had great mentors in the fishing game. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, I say we because as a fisherman, fly fisherman on the flats, you can't do that without a great guide. You know, you're only 50% of the, of the, of the equation. equation. Yeah. Nikki, when you, you, you told the story, your dad, and you were t talking out on the lawn, we were talking and about your first tarpon and catching and you guys just went nuts and went crazy was it a was it a deal that once you caught that fish it, i mean the spark was there and oh, i was hooked hooked from that moment on i was hooked yeah we were my dad we were in the back country and he got into this spot where they were just blooping and laying and just all happy fish and you know i could throw probably 40 50 feet but it would land in a pile and it you know there'd be slack everywhere and my dad would always say nicky you gotta stop that rod tip and he would get mad i mean <laughs> listen I, mean, <laughs> my, I love my dad but he would yell he, at you oh i mean that's an understatement you mean you would make me cry when i was a kid i used and, to tell him you want to learn faster you want to learn slow <laughs> i mean make me cry yeah. I mean, you were brutal but but he made you the fish he, yeah he did yeah. yeah credit to him he did um you know he could have been a little nicer sometimes. But <laughs> yeah, I'm just joking. No, he was good. And, but um, that first tarpon, yeah, I casted like 40, 50 feet right in, right in the middle of a ball of fish, and there was slack everywhere. And my dad was just saying, strip it, strip, 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 strip. And I just kept stripping. I didn't know what to expect. It was, I've never caught a tarpon before, and all you see is this silver knife underwater, and I got tight. 
and he came out of the water, and my dad just started yelling, yelling as loud as he could, and I was, I started yelling. We still yell. Yeah, <laughs> we still yell, exactly, and, you know, I was about a 70-pounder, and, oh, I was hooked. I mean, that moment just, it changed my life. It did. That's awesome. So tell me about how you guys, in the spring, you're telling me that February, March, April, May, but March and April, right, is kind of the hot time. And forgive me, anybody listening, I'm, I'm not a saltwater fisherman. I'd love to get into it, but I've never done it. Tell me kind of how your routine is um, in, the, in the springtime when it's, when it's really going. So in the early spring, you know, starting in February, when the weather gets right and the water temperature gets right, you can fish um, for laid-up tarpon in the backcountry. Um, February, March, but the real migration, the tarpon migration that everyone talks about in the in the Keys and in the West Coast of Florida, that really kicks off in April, April, May, June, and that's when you see these strings coming down the beach, and it's so visual. It's, I mean, that's the the pinnacle of tarpon fishing, I think, is when you're, you know, you're waiting in this spot, and all of a sudden you look up a hundred yards away, and here comes a wolf pack of big old hundred pound fish coming right out of your boat and you're shaking all bet on you're shaking and it's but so that normally starts around the first week in april and it'll go till you know it'll go till like the first week in july to be honest and um we i mean my dad has rented a house in the lower keys the month of april and may um for the last what 10 years once i got out of tournament fishing it was just you and i um we were always renting that house so it was probably 10 years yeah probably for the last 10 years at least 10 years yeah and so we we just just go down and fish every day for five weeks so it's just you and 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 a guide too no just nikki and i just two 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 man deal just us and he's a great puller you know so i can fish he can fish and it's just i love that you know and i've got certain sponsors that'll come down and fish with me periodically but for the most part it's just the two of us that and, is and, awesome and no one else is allowed that is awesome there, i, I have it. people that call i'll say a funny story i mean really I, I tell people no i only fish with my son that's awesome you know and i'd like to fish with other people but they can't get it done mm-hmm. it's like so let me ask you why would i push my boat for 10 hours a day for you and you can't catch a fish and you can't pull me. What's in it for me? Yeah. Well, I totally understand <laughs> that. You know, I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm selfish, but it's like you're working your your butt off, and they can't get the fly ten feet in front of them. Right. Out of the boat. And right. I've had people come down, really good friends, and, and I've learned I cannot do this. It's a waste of their time. It's too aggravating for I, everybody. I get it. Yeah. And and but just, it'd be like somebody take you take bow hunting. They can't pull the string back. Yeah. Same same scenario. I get it. And why? You know. You said you're almost pushing 70. Why waste any time, any second right. when you're pushing 70 when you're not going to be with your son? Right. I mean, it's to not. be with someone that can't make the cast and you only have so many casts left, you, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, time's precious. Yeah. Especially now. Yeah. I mean, I, you walked me up and showed me your house and everything and I got to see in the room where there's just ski memorabilia and trophies and you know you were telling about your fishing house and what have you and you know just being around you guys literally for a couple hours now never having met either one of you i mean i know you you would trade everything in this house to have the time with your with your kid and that's that's awesome i mean that's 
that is what it's all about. That's that's I've, ma- I magical. I just feel so fortunate. I've got three kids. Obviously, I love all of them. Sure. But I've got this connection that is omnipresent across the board of my life, hunting and fishing and golf and just messing around in the woods. Um, it's beautiful. I'm, I'm so, he's, he's, like Nikki said, he's my best friend as well. But he, is, he can get this stuff done. Yeah. It's not like we're together because we just want to be together. We're together too because we are very successful at this. And to watch him catch these big fish and do well in the tournaments and to call in an elk for him last year that he shot from 30 yards and watch him pile up and just the two of us. It's like, the you know. And then I called one in for you and you shot you shot one yeah. this year. But it's like last year. what more could you ever beg for or pray for? in life to have that bond to have that bond and mm-hmm. that connection and not only, yeah i'm not going to berate not being able to get it done but two we are very successful at this stuff which sure. drives that passion even more so because if you were to go into the woods time in and time out for 20 days every year 30 days and you backpack in you know two three hours and you don't get anything at some point you, you know you're going to get a little bit burned out and say hey why don't we why don't we try something else right you know so when you're successful that fire burns brighter, and, and it's gotten pretty big, that fire. The unfortunate thing is I'm getting older now, so I don't know if I can maintain that fire that much longer. Sure, I get it. You guys talk about your love for archery elk hunting. Was there a time you know, that you guys can put a finger on in the last few years that that really turned on to kind of being your you guys' thing? Was there one particular hunt or something that you know lit that fire, or was it more... The bond of that fishing and then let's let's do it on the hunting aspect as well yeah i mean like i said the first tarpon i caught i was hooked for life the first time i saw a bull elk bugle in the woods i was hooked for life it was it was probably the first time we hunted with our mutual friend josh over in steamboat and yeah it's just the camaraderie coming back you know to a stove eating mountain house freeze-dried food being wet and cold and sleeping in a little sleeping bag and dodging bears and just the whole experience is just it's incredible i love it and um i would say just from the first to answer your question from the first hunt i was hooked i would say and i don't know i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think hunting hunting turned you into the man that you are yeah yeah, in a lot because, of ways. Because, so. of the, because it's so hard. I mean, we were going deep backpacking. Like having con- to gut it out type right. of stuff. Really hard. I mean, we were going down. We were going into the woods where you're backpacking and, and carrying a lot of weight for for three hours. And we'd spend six days in there in the rain. And you're eating freeze-dried food. And you're freezing. You have no change of clothes. You're wringing your socks out in the morning. And every day you're out there in the woods from dark to dark. And you're dying. In a, in a lot of ways it is miserable it's like and there are no animals except for maybe a couple here and a couple there but you're not going to be able to endure that unless you become a man children can't do that that's true how much of the hunting aspect that that you guys are so drawn to how much of it is the strategy and the tactics and trying to figure it out and and the physical aspect of, you know, hiking and, you know, what to you is the thing that makes it the, the draw for, for you, Nikki? Calling them in. 
So the, so the tactical aspect of getting close, calling, having them react, having them respond and, Correct. and come to the, the, the goal. communication, just like my dad was saying about tarpon fishing, about mm-hmm. communicating with the animal mm-hmm. via the fly. As you know, it's the communication with the with the mouth read or the bugle. It, it, it's that's, everything. that's everything. To yeah. Me too. That so connection. without that aspect, elk hunting wouldn't be elk hunting, would it? No. No. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to go tarpon fishing and, and not and not see a tarpon. Right. And dredge. Right. You know, and and hope to get tight. Blind cast. I mean, it's. I mean, there's so many scenarios where. You can you can paint this ugly picture as to why you don't want to do it again, but I think when you have that animal talking to you and screaming at you because of what you just said, right? That connection will make everything doable. You, you're you're going to hike to the top of Everest and jump off a cliff to hear that animal scream again. Yeah, for sure. Um, around here in the Aspen area, the elk hunting. It can be dang tough. I mean, it's not easy around here. Talk about that a little bit. I haven't had a shot in four years. Yeah, and so here's this huge passion you have, and you haven't had a shot in four years, but you're still Thank just... God he's killed him. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, killed him. Lucky. But, but yeah, it, you know, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say, the, I mean, the you, terrain you, around here... You've been here. killing him, so <laughs> it's easy for you to talk about. No, but the terrain around Aspen is, is, is gnarly. It's hard. It's steep. And we don't have the, like I was telling you, Jay, we don't have the the herd that, you know, Western Colorado does or Steamboat or Meeker. And, you know, there's just little nooks and crannies where you can find them and they get pushed around because there's, there's a lot of pressure around here. And if you're not persistent and you're not in the woods all the time, it's it's very hard. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, like you said, you haven't got a shot in four years. And how many miles did you hike last year? Oh, God. And I had my back fused a year and a half ago, so it's not that easy anymore. I'm going to replace knee, and, you know, I got a lot of arthritis, so it's like it's better be cool, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. So that's a great testament to elk hunting. It's, yeah. it's way cool. And yeah. we had a, we had a, a, a mutual friend um, who's a, who was a compound um, archery guy and then went to traditional, and he was asking us, well, why don't you go to traditional? You know, you guys are love fly fishing, and you love the traditional aspect of being in nature and whatnot. And we were saying, well, it, it's so hard where we are. Yeah. And if we can get to 30, 40, 50 yards of a of a bull or just an elk in general. You want to be able to kill them. We want to capitalize on right. it. Yeah. I don't want to wait for a 10, 20-yard shot with a traditional bow. Right. Because it's so hard around here. You might not get that. Exactly. Well, it's, it's funny because Flip Pallet is a big, you know, well, that's traditional it. archer. And and Flip was saying, you're not going to become an archer until you shoot, you know, traditional. And and I, would, I wanted, you know, I didn't tell him this, but it's like, okay, Flip, you come hunt where we hunt. You, right. you, you pull that stick back and see how many animals you're going to kill. Well, and I think it's one thing if you've killed 30 or 40 bulls and, right. you know, you you've killed him and it's like okay now maybe you graduate to where you're at with the fishing where you just want to watch him there right. may be a time when when you just want to watch him shoot all the bulls look, and you won't pull your bow back at all look if i hunted with you on your ranch i'd be a longbow guy tomorrow yeah you'd be, <laughs> you'd be done in an hour yeah <laughs> i don't know with you and that was one more question i was going to ask you is is there any part of you guys that have wanted to reach out and hunt some of the other places other than the OTC, or is it the grind and the the toughness that I'm kind over of that grind stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you want to. Uh, yeah, you know what? I want to be in animals. 
I don't mind grinding, but I'm getting a little tired of it because mm -hmm. it really is hard. Mm -hmm. um, and last year, thank God, Nikki killed this great animal, you know, which really, you know, made that season, so, you know, so awesome. I mean, sure, it's great anyway, but I like being in the animals. Mm -hmm. And so, like, to go hunt somewhere in somebody's ranch and maybe buy a, a, a landowner tag, I see nothing wrong with that. Sure. Just giving yourself more opportunity. I want to be in the animals. Right. I want to see them and hear them. Well, and I've had a lot of conversation with guys on calling elk and what have you. And one thing I've been fortunate, I guided in Arizona for 20 years in the best state in the country for elk, the best units in the country for elk. You know, I've hunted some of the reservations, you know, the best place. So I've had tons of encounters and tons of practice calling. And, you know, I think about some of you guys' hunting where you may only get a couple shots, you know, at getting a chance to call a bull, you know, four or five chances a season. Right. Where right. I might have 15 in a day. A day. Every so day. it's like if you were tarpon fishing and only got a shot once every four, every six or eight days. You might not be as good as if you've caught right. quite a bit of fish. Right, for sure. You know, you'll never get good if you get a shot a day. Right. You know what? You're never going to get great at tarpon fishing. Fishing only five days a year. Right. That's a great point. You're yeah. not. Right. I promise you. Right. No matter how good you. When look, I how, was when I was tournament fishing, I was fishing 60, 70 days a year with the best guides on the water, and. When, a lot of the people that were in the tournaments were only fishing just a handful of days. Now, a lot of these anglers are fishing a lot. But two, it's like you're not, you're, nobody's going to be as good of a caller as you are. Look, look at where you've been and what you've seen. Well, I think going along with having good sounds, you have to know when to call and why to call and why not to call at certain times. And so there's a lot to, to go at it. Just like if you guys are casting at fish, you may hold and not even cast because you know you can't catch that fish. The right. angle's it, wrong or something. The angle's yeah. wrong or the wind or the – you. and I've never been, so I'm just kind of speculating. But I'm sure there's times when you're like, I'm not even going to fire. I'm going to wait. Right. And, okay, now I'm going to, you know, make my cast, and I know I can Absolutely. catch an efficient time. And that goes with, you know, as many at-bats as you can get and know when to call and why to call and then say, you know – most of the time before I call a bull, I've, I can give you a relative, you know, percentage chance of how, how much chance that bull's coming in. A lot of times I can be like, that bull's coming in for sure as soon as I hear how he reacts to my call. Right. Whereas if you didn't have that at bat a lot, you don't know if, is he just bugling intensely or is, no, he's coming. Right. Right. You know? It's interesting how that plays out. So looking forward in this year for elk hunting, you guys going to do quite a bit um, this season? Yeah, hopefully. You know, every year it's daunting for me um, because I know it's gotten, you know, a lot harder. And, you know, yeah, hopefully. I mean, we're going to hunt around here. And at some point we've got to figure out a game plan. And we're, we're trying to take a look at some uh, public land between some big ranches in the state mm -hmm. where we can hypothetically maybe get in on two ways. We've got some electric bikes, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a bad idea, mm -hmm. but maybe two get dropped off with horses and a sat phone. Because mm -hmm. uh, I want to be realistic with this. 
you know, Nikki says, come on, we got this. I said, no, we don't have this. <laughs> Look at what you're working with here. Let's go climb Pyramid Peak tomorrow. No, you don't have this. I'm not going to go climb Pyramid Peak tomorrow. Although you did, just do it. I did it last year. Yeah, yeah, he dragged me up there, and I cried when I got to the top. I didn't think I was going to be able to get down. I'm just trying to keep you young. Yeah, or kill me, one of the two. But it's all good. But, yeah, no, we're going to be all in. I mean, I don't know what I can do with this, what I have to work with, but one way or the other, we are going to hunt hard. Mm-hmm. And we will kill something. Yeah. Do you have you guys gotten into high country mule deer hunting or sheep hunting or you know goat hunting or anything like that? I got into mule deer hunting last year, and I I felt the juice of that. What was it that was maybe different than elk that kind of got you going? The glassing aspect. I love to glass. Mm-hmm. Every morning I glass with a cup of coffee outside. Um, you know, looking in the mountains, I just love it. Um, you know, and, and patterning, patterning them uh, as well, finding their beds and their feeding areas and what slope they're going to hang out on. And um, it, it was fun because it, that was totally new to me last year. I was, I've just been elk hunting, and I, I drew a deer tag last year and was successful and got a taste of it, and I loved it. You know, this was my 21st season this I just finished in January guiding coos deer hunters in Mexico and hunting down there myself uh, for coos deer. And one of the things that I like so much about coos deer, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they're 100 pounds and, you know, the rack of big ones this big. But the glassing aspect and the tactical aspect of observing and watching and figuring them out and where they go in, where they come out of the trees, you know, and where they move and where they bed. That's what I've been addicted right. to in, in January, you know, hunting them during the rut. And, you know, to hear you talk about deer hunting and, and it kind of spurred some interest and passion in, in you, it's pretty cool. That's one thing I like about hunting and fishing is, you know, we get to plan our gear. We get to plan our trips. We get to, you know, we're outside shooting. We're outside. It's, it's, it's like an all year something you're thinking about. I mean, I'm sure there's times in the spring when you're out there on the tarpon water and it's dead and you're thinking about, hey, I might hike up to this basin and I might try and, you know, see if the elk are up here. So it's kind of fun, you know, and that's one thing I really enjoy about hunting and fishing is the tactical aspect of, and I'm sure, you know, when you started out tarpon fishing, trying to figure it out and trying to put yourself in a position to succeed and be efficient. Mm-hmm. Right. Any well, initially, for, for, as a fisherman, you have two aspects, as the angling aspect and then the guiding aspect. And so forever, I was the, I was the angler. So I was trying to fish uh, well, and I was trying to figure out how to fight fish effectively, like we were speaking out on the lawn, and about how to pull on fish and how to catch a 100-pound fish quickly. And, and learning how, and I and designed this technique where I can learn how to fight fish in my garage through weights and pulleys, et cetera. Um, and then as a guide, that is a whole different bag of apples that is so complicated. And we just started tapping into that. Oh, my God. That's much. so much harder than being the actual angler. It's so what hard. Do you, what do you mean when you just started tapping into it? That, that intrigues me. Well, because my dad's been fishing with guides for forever, and so, you know, just started tapping into it, meaning the last eight to ten years, we're trying to do it on our own. Mm-hmm. So we got to find the, the edges and, and the, the current flow and the tides and the basins where they lay up and what edge they swim better on we, we, we're, tra- we're trying to think yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to think as a guide and so but don't it, you think i mean that's 
now almost all of the fun of it. It is. It? It, it, it's really, really great. As you know, as a guide, you, you killed that animal for that, that client. And in, and in fishing, you know, again, I don't want to shortchange being a great angler because there's a lot to being oh, an yeah. angler. But two, you know, if you're a great guide... There's so much to know and about the edges and the and the and the tides change every day and they're not consistent, you know, with the, with the drop of flow. You can look at the difference, you know, the daily difference. Mm-hmm. To me, that is where the magic takes place. And what's very interesting is you can fish a great spot in the lower keys on a high tide, on a high fall, a high falling tide a high rise, you could fish the great spot on wrong tides and you'll never see a fish. Right. In that case, you'll think that spot is terrible. Right. You just got to figure out what tide to fish that spot Probably on. Right, kind of like you and the migration of elk and when and where they're going to be. Well, yeah, and I mean, anything, like whatever you're hunting, I, and I think that's what's so fun about hunting and fishing when you get to a certain level is you get to the stage where you just want to pound every head and catch, catch, catch. And then you, then you get to a stage where you want to figure out, well, why is that trout rising now? And he wasn't 30 minutes ago. Well, obviously yeah, bugs are hatching, whatever's going on, but why is he taking emergers or why, you know, there's so much. And I'm sure with the saltwater gig, it's just, it's the same thing. There's so much to it. I mean, you could take someone, you could take me who've never been saltwater fly fishing and you pull me out there and I cast 25 feet away and throw this thing out there and this fish eats and you're like, that fish would not eat a hundred, uh, 99 out of 100 times and he just ate this idiot's fly. That happens. And, yep. and, and I catch a fish and I get a picture and I'm like, I'm a tarpon fisherman and you're like you are far from a tarpon fisherman you made a horrible cast i angled the boat just perfectly so they'd eat it but i don't know that you know it right you get well, it's saying? just like these guys that go to vermejo kill these monster elk and they can't walk two miles without passing passing out right and and, and that's the whole like you were saying before like nuance there's it's like there's so much to it when you really get into the it. recipe yeah and how you do it. And that's one thing I love is it's it's how the game is played. Right. You know, how do you play the game? And, and, you know, everybody has their own level of this is the pure way to do it. And I'm one of those that I like all kinds of tactics. And I hate that some parts of the sport get, whether it be hunting or fishing, is, you know, oh, I don't like that guy. He fishes with spinners. Right. Or, oh, I don't like that guy. He right. fishes with bait or whatever. We all have our way and th- reasons why we do it. Well, how do you feel about tournament calling, elk calling on stage? I, I think that tournament calling on stage is great for people to listen to. But Have you lot, ever done that? So I've judged three years in the world championships. And my opinion is that a lot of the calls that people hear on stage will not work in the elk woods. I know people that are fantastic callers that would never make it on the stage, but I would take them every day of the week in the woods. So I'm fine with the tournament calling because I think it gets people into the sport and what have you. One of the things I think the difference is, is is I think people would learn a lot more if they're not listening to some of that tournament calling, if they're listening to elk themselves or they're, you know, go out and get some experience with someone in the woods and how are you using that call? Um, 
but you know it, it's it's kind of like fly casting a a, a a guy that you know is maybe a phenomenal tournament fly caster he might not be able to go out and catch a tarpon i don't know I mean, he, he probably have a ha hard time unless we told him exactly where to put the the fly and how to strip it. Well, that's then what I'm saying. Get, so at least he could get the fly there. Yeah, I mean, initially. so I think a lot of the tournament calling with a lot of the bugling and a lot of the fancy chuckling and all the different things that you hear, I think you go do that on heavily pressured elk, they're going to clam up and go away. Right. Um, I'm a big proponent of cow calling as opposed to bugling where you know most of the tournament callers i think are phenomenal buglers but they're really weak in the cow calling there's only a handful of people that i would say are really good cow callers they might argue with me and say hey wherever i hunt bugling is the only thing that works so i mean is that true though i think if if you ask me in my experience if i never bugled again i would call in just as many elk I that's my personal opinion I've got friends that that's all they'll do is bugle. I well, think my contention is, tell me if I'm wrong, that most bulls would like to have a girlfriend, but not all bulls want to fight. Right, and and it's kind of like humans. I mean, there's fighters and there's lovers, but more than I found, more than not, most bulls want to come to a cow call rather than a bugle to fight. Yeah. There are a few that will flip their switch, and they want to fight, but, I mean, you take... 99 out of 100 guys in a bar, they'd probably rather come to a sexy, you know, sounding girl than go fight some guy. Right. But correct me if I'm wrong, I guess the one situation, or maybe not just the one, but a one situation would be where the bugle might be successful if there's a big hard bull with 20 or 30 cows. Why would he leave 20 or 30 cows to go pick up one cow? So that challenge bugle, couldn't that Absolutely. work? Absolutely, and, and so that's why... Yes, I think bugle. I think a phenomenal bugler can call in a lot of elk, and if they're a phenomenal cow caller and have that weapon of being a great bugler, right. they're deadly. Yeah, that's yeah. a combination. But I, how many times in the elk woods do you hear a elk a person blow an elk bugle and go, "That's a person." Yeah. Oh yeah. How many times do you hear someone cow call and you look and go, right? That sounded pretty good. This is a hoochie mama. <laughs> here's, here's the reason why I think that happens. The bugle is a long call. And when you hear it, you can hear and you hear inconsistencies. You hear, okay, that's a human. Right. You hear, yeah, yeah. It's too Maybe quick. twice. You can't, you need to hear it again to go, well, and then all of a sudden that guy over there goes, yeah, one time. You're like. Maybe that is a cow. It's a shorter call, so yeah. you have a smaller time frame to hear it. To criticize to it. To criticize yeah. it. And I think the elk are the same way. Right. I think the bugle that is taught on a lot of the videos and you hear on tournament stage, if you go out and blow that, an elk's going to be like, there was something in that 30-second call that didn't sound right. Whereas, yeah, yeah, that's such a short call. Right. So, Makes sense. I mean, it's again, hard to, it's hard to dissect that short cow call. Exactly. That's, know, that's, I've been, we've been successful with, uh, like, young bull. Bugles. Love it. Love it. Just a squeal. Just, yeah. So I think you add in some cow calling, you know, good cow calling and a bull bugles, and then if he thinks there's a little pipsqueak bull over there, that's the situation where I think bugling little small squeals of an insubordinate, 
Yeah, right. I'm just going to go over there and knock him out, take right. those cows and bring them on. That's exactly how we try right. to do it. Right. And I've heard guys, oh, I want to sound like the biggest bull in the woods. I, I never want to sound right. like the You're biggest bull. you scare everybody yeah, away. Right. I mean, maybe in the one circumstance where you get in close to a, a herd bull that's really worked up and super aggressive and he's a fighter, maybe. But is he going to leave his group of gals over here to charge 100 yards over to you? Not most of the right, time. Right, right. So um, do you guys find with your own calling, I mean, around here, what works for you the best? We um, we do a lot of, like, whining, a lot of whining. and But that being said, on a general basis, we try to limit our calling, I think. We do. and But our mentor... It was he would make a cow call like it was like eh, please come over here like a pleading yeah yeah like eh, like a like a whining yeah. beagle we had a beagle dog <laughs> and he he'd whine and, and and the cow call sounded like a whining bugle, beagle mm-hmm. like please come over and take me away right and and we learned from him you know so it, I would always like after that replicate that and then I was just like when I was first out there a lot, I was like pleading, please, somebody come over. And I was right always, I'd always pull in. I'm ready, willing, yeah. and able. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I'd always pull in some spikes and some younger and some cows mm-hmm. with that. And then more recently, I would say it would be more watching you uh, on your YouTubes. And Nikki said, Dad, this guy's the best. I always said that. And so You did? Yeah, so. I always said that because you always, you, you, a lot of people go, ew. Close them out. And you open your So so now, yeah. So the first person that I saw do that, and I was like, that is a game changer. Right. So it is a game changer. It'll be fun on our podcast with you. Hopefully, that you'll do one with us. For sure. I want to hear you call. Yeah. I want you to hear us call. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the dynamics of communicating. Because I'm fascinated by that. And, And obviously, watching you, the last two years, we've been successful calling like you with that open mouth. Yeah. I mean, if, if, when I talk to guys, the single most important thing that I tell them that I see mistakes people make, and they're, you know, I believe Steve Chappell is the best cow caller in the world. He's, I was partners with him for 10 years. I'm happy that I gave him the, one of the very first um, Primos pallet plates when they first came out, and he's like gone so far above and beyond what I do from being able to make every sound. I kind of have one sound, and it works for me, but... I tell people, open that mouth. Don't uh, cow elk don't go. Ew. They don't do that. They go. Yeah, They open their mouth. If you watch them, there. Yeah. I mean, it. You've got to get that sound of that nasally, and you've got to be opening your mouth. That's you know, that's what works for me. And I've told lots of people, and they report back that that's helped them. Tons. You know, it's interesting too because I used to cow call a lot with a tube and a reed, but after watching you. I'm not using that that tube as much. So I think the tube kind of hollows it out, and it just doesn't sound as nasally to me. It takes away that nasally sound. Um, Now, I think you could use a small tube if you wanted to mix it up a little bit and sound like a couple different cows. Um, But, I mean, I don't know if you guys have gotten into the external 
um, like the Steve Chapels, like Matriarch or Trophy Wife, you know, the bite and blows, what I call. You can get pretty nasally on those, and I'll bring my calls up and we'll mess with them. I feel like it's cheating if you have a mouth or a, uh, and, 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 like a whistle. And it, <laughs> it, it does work incredibly well, and yeah. it's definitely not the purest. Um, but, you know, it work, yeah. It works, yeah, hmm. for sure. But I'm glad that tip helped you. Oh, it's it helped. I've had so much response from people saying, you know, you're the only person out there that's saying open your mouth. Right. And so, I mean, I'm going to continue doing it because it, that's what works for me. It just, well, it just sounds the best. Well, I mean, I know some people that can yeah, call out of the side of their mouth, but I feel like every person that I've tried to say, now do it and drop that lower jaw, they report back. I had more success this season than ever calling elk in so i know it works right yeah that's a great tip now when was the last time you hunted uh public land that's a good question the last elk tag that now this is crazy the last elk tag where i had personally and i shot a bull was 2005 in arizona on public land i had a unit 10 tag the same year in 2005 i also had a san carlos tag wow I bought a San Carlos tag three years in a row, 04, 05, and 06. In the White Mountains, on the reservation? It's just, so the Black River separates the White Mountain mm -hmm. from the San Carlos. The reason that I bought the San Carlos tag in 04 was because the season was two weeks long. It was actually 15 days long. So being an elk junkie, I wanted to spend as much time in the elk woods as I could where they were bugling chaos and the san carlos you've been to the white mountain the san carlos at the time i don't know how it is now was unreal i mean i would have 12 to 15 bulls every single day called in <sighs> maybe more i mean it could oh be as God. much as 20 just chaos bugling public lands no it no no that's that's the reservation, that's the, reservation. Yeah. the last public land tag see i have 16 or no i have 18 points i have to count it up in arizona for elk so I've been guiding. I, I don't, you know, you guys hunt OTC and guys are like, well, when are you going to go do it for yourself? I love taking people out. And with the new thing on the ranch, I get to monitor elk basically during the rut from September 1 to October 15th. I'm out in the woods every single day. I run a string of 150 trail cameras. I'm listening to them bugle. I'm taking pictures of them, video them. I love elk. Right. Um, I've kind of gotten to where I was in that stage where I just want to kill, you know, I want to kill him. I, I love elk meat. Yeah. Um, but now I've kind of graduated to, I love taking video pictures. I love calling them in. I love messing with them just as much as I like flinging an arrow at them. Right. It's the same thing with you and fishing. Yeah. And like in 2016, I drew probably one of the best elk tags in the state of Utah. I drew the beaver unit and I went up there and had a, um, my friend, Tony, um, went up there, had a phenomenal hunt. I stayed with him and his family, and I went home without an elk. And I chased, he put me on a bull, and I chased him pretty much the whole time. And I had two encounters with him, and I should have killed him both times. And, and I didn't. I didn't get it done. I didn't. I never flung an arrow. But and you were chasing the right guy. I was chasing this, and the auction tag holder killed him, and he scored, you know, 411 inches. And mm. um, I... I've kind of gotten to where if I if I'm going to shoot one, I want it to be a really good one. And I love. There's nothing I like more than going to a place and trying to find the biggest animal there is. And well, once I find them, trying to figure them out and trying to kill them. 
let me ask you this in that I'm I don't I'm not young enough to be able to have enough points to draw great units. I feel that certain units like unit 10 and these units where you, it takes 20 some points to get that's like private land mm -hmm. essentially. It's a great hunt. Arizona it's, it's pu public land is phenomenal. If you can but but that's that's a tag that takes 20 years to get. Mm -hmm. So somebody like myself people say, you know, I have this little personal war. Well, you know, I hunt public land and I kill this on unit 10. To me, that is like private land. Absolutely. Because nobody else can hunt it. Absolutely. Well, it's limited. It's limited. It's limited. But the thing is, so so but it but, is. But somebody has a, a connotation, oh, you killed that on a, on a ranch. Yeah. Okay, so what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, you've got a great ranch, and somebody can come to your ranch and kill a great right. bull, but somebody might demean that because it was killed on a ranch versus Unit 10. It takes 25 years, only 20 guys can hunt it. That's private. That's as private, so, private more so than, than your ranch. The wrestling match between private and public and reservation, not reservation, I get the whole thing. I'm at the point now where it's like, I like elk. Just I leave like, me alone. I like interactions. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know. I, th I, I think what it is is it's a money thing. You mean it's gotten to where, oh, you only killed that because you had money? Right. I think that's what a lot of people believe. Yeah. And, it, and, right. and that and There's a lot to that, too. And Well, like Unit 10, if it's, you know, it, it, it's public land. It's just very hard to get. Hard to get. Right. You're not paying $15,000 for that tag. Right. You're paying you know 20 years of your life by drawing that um i think that's a money deal as you know um because if if you if you say you hunt dinosaur national park what is that unit one or unit ten? two or two, two ten and, yeah. yeah so you know that's what 22 years 23 years putting in i'm gonna be 90 <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, my, my pushing my, your walker, yeah. blowing your bugle. I think it's a money deal. People sh shame other people for paying fifteen to twenty thousand dollars on a tag and killing a great bull. That's well, so I, how do you well, feel about landowner tags? Well, before before I answer that one, I would say I don't know that it's any different than someone saying, "Well, yeah, but Andy goes down to Florida and he rents a house for a month and a half and he's on the water every every day." And I would say what's your point he has he wakes up in the morning just like you do and puts on his pants and brushes his teeth just like you do right. you could go down and rent a house for and fish fish it, the same water the way i look at right, it is right. this guys it's it's people if if someone does something that's different they want to knock someone down rather than say you know what i'm going to figure out that how i'm going to go to the keys for six weeks you make priorities and you make decisions in your life that you say, I'm going to hunt private land elk every year for the rest of my life and public land, or I'm just going to hunt public. I think one of the things that's gotten in hunting and fishing is this, oh, well, he does it that way. He's no good. Or, oh, you know, discrediting. It right. would be like discrediting. Uh, he saying, shoots a compound. You know, Andy's been able to fish with the best guides in the world and... Well, it's all a choice. He chose to do that. Right. You get yeah, what I'm I saying? I totally agree. Totally you know, agree. Like, I know guys on that could kill elk on private, public. It doesn't matter. I know guys that couldn't kill an elk on public if they, they, they couldn't kill an elk on public. They could only kill them on private. Right. But who am I to say, oh, that bull that he shot's no good because 
he killed it on. He had a guide right. on a big ranch. Right. And I mean, if, if you're elderly and you have the money to spend on a me. great, yeah, that's <laughs> me. Right. And if you have the money to spend on a great piece of property with big animals, and you get encounters every day. Why not? I always say, if you had the opportunity to hunt on a reservation or on a great private ranch, and you don't do it because you just want to hunt public land more power to you right but i would argue that most people that gripe about private land if they had the opportunity they'd do it in a heartbeat right right i agree and i i love elk i love you know whatever i hunt i want to give myself the best opportunity i can the most shots um you know it's like why do you go to the keys and fish for tarpon there when you could go to the bahamas and you could or you know is there's probably another place where you could catch more tarpon babies you want babies in mexico you want to go where the biggest are and you know you've made sacrifices and you've made sacrifices for your time and your money that that's where you're going right so be it yeah and i think there'll always be people and you guys have probably seen it in anything in life that they're gonna try and knock you down regardless i don't pay attention to it right you know it's not it's not worth the effort yeah i mean life's short it's, it's it's interesting in that this is a new world for us. Obviously, we've been a little bit successful, but do you find you don't hunt public land? But I find that in tarpon fishing, we've been down there now. I've been doing it for over thirty years, and it became the most important thing in my life for a big part of those thirty years. And over those thirty years, now I'm seeing so many boats. It's hard to get a spot. The fish are very finicky. It's really hard to catch them unless you're really really good. And I see now a little bit of a problem with bow hunting. It's become so popular that there are so many people out there not knowing what they're doing. They've never had mentors. Luckily, we've had mentors. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that we're really good, but we've been able to kill a few, a few animals. But I see so many people out there that are just running around and on public land with not very many animals. That makes it so much more difficult. And who am I to, to be upset with that? I've got some buddies here like Ryan Smalls who's been doing this for a long, long time. That guy should be like upset knowing that it's kind of over a little bit. Well, do you see that? In absolutely. The sport? And, you know, that's one thing when, you know, I always try and with the podcast and with my social media, I try and build up hunting and fishing and put it in as positive light as I can. And quite honestly, there's a lot of new people in the sport and there's more people out in the woods. And it's just making it tougher. So, you know, we're, we've kind of created some of our own problem. Um, right. You know, you with the tarpon fishing, you know, you have a TV show and you, you're trying to be the best you can be, but you're also filming it. It's brought a lot of great things to the sport. So I don't think in bow hunting we've gotten to the point where it's so overrun that it's now a total detriment, but it is something to think about of, you know, well, you know, we keep adding people in the woods uh, you know, but then we hear stats that, you know, hunters are, you know, it's, it's a dying deal. Um, it is, is it? I, I think it is. Yeah. It's it doesn't funny. feel like it in places like Aspen, Colorado, cause you go, you know, you hike nine miles in on a trailhead and you get there and you think I got this place to myself and you just look over the ridge and there's three tents down there. And That's exactly what happened yeah, to us. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, what the heck? Um, and I think as time goes on, I think that's going to make private land and reservations and some of these things more valuable. I just think that's kind of the deal we're 
that's just what we're dealing with. Right. You're just going to have to go deeper, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> what are you getting out of your pocket? <laughs> uh, oh, I thought you were talking about deeper into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Deeper. Go deeper. Guys, it's been awesome. Um, it's uh, it's fun to have kind of this common bond of hunting and fishing and and all that. And you guys are both great golfers, too. I saw on your Instagram you guys like to play golf. Looks like you're a heck of a golfer. I'm okay. Who's better? Who's better? He is. Who won today? Well, he's a scratch golfer. You're scratch. He's a scratch. Good and I'm, for you. I'm, I'm still okay. I'm still, you know, I'm a three. I can still Good shoot in the you guys. low 70s. How much golf do you guys get in? I mean, is it something all year long you're playing? I love golf. I had a par three in my backyard at one time. I absolutely love golf. I am fascinated by the game. You too? Yeah. Um, how often do you play now in the I summer? I don't play nearly as much in, in the summer here in Aspen as I do in Florida, uh, just because there's so many other things to do, and I don't want to waste that much time playing golf. But we'll play at least twice a week because we're in a city match play tournament going on right now. We have men's league on Thursdays, but usually – at least twice a week we're playing yeah. here in Aspen. In in Florida, I'm a member of a great club. And I hate to say this, but it's a men-only golf club. I can mm-hmm. probably get hammered. But you <laughs> might get hammered by it. But Don't you know what? Here's my contention. three women that listen to my podcast. <laughs> Here's my contention with a men-only golf club. You have a bunch of guys that have the same common commonality. There are no homes in this golf course. There are no rules. You can use your cell phone. You can do exactly what you want. Uh, and I had this conversation one time. Martina Navratilova used to play a lot of golf. And so Martina and Billie Jean King were together, and we were at this event. And Martina asked me about golf. I said, I just joined this all-men's golf club. Oh, boy. Oh, I that was myself a, yeah. I got Billie Jean King yeah. and Martina Navratilova going at me. I said, look. Who cares if you want to start your own tennis club and a prerequisite is you've got to be a servant volleyer, you've got to be gay, and it's got to be grass courts. Who cares? Yeah. It's What's their the difference? It yeah. is. And that's the beauty of this country and the yeah. fact that there is such a, a large amount of freedom um, of choice. Mm-hmm. And if you have private land and you want to go build a high fence uh, ranch down there and bring in all these different animals animals for you know yeah to be killed who cares yeah we do live in a great country yeah i i'll bet it was an extreme honor to be to represent our country and be an olympian can you talk a little bit about that well uh, you know yeah i would say that it became almost part of the norm at the time because you're so embedded in racing that that was just another race it was just the biggest race uh I would say, you know, after the fact, yeah, there's a lot of pride in that. And during so, yeah, when you're marching with your team in the Olympics and everybody's wearing, you know, the flag and, and red, white, and blue, and and there's only a handful of you representing your country, it's a very, very special thing for sure. Absolutely. Do you, you think it's more special to you now than it was then, just because you have more perspective? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I've been very fortunate to do a bunch of different things, but I think one of my... My closest things that I, I look back on and, and relish is, is my relationship with President Bush, 41. Uh, he was a great friend. Uh, he was a friend of my ex-wives. Um, 
my ex-wife, even though I have more than one, <laughs> one particular ex-wife, I've talked to her. Yeah, sorry about have. that. We've kind of gotten uh, used to the S's and you know, that, that word. But, um, you know, to have traveled and fished with him around the, the world for 20 years and be invited to the White House and you know, to be at Camp David when uh, Kuwait was invaded. Uh, he's being inducted into the Fishing Hall of Fame this year, and I'm awesome. I'm the MC for the event. You know, having not only these sports uh, as a big part of my life, but these people in in these sports, like my son Nikki, mm -hmm. uh, my ex-wife Chrissy, was was awesome in so many ways. Mm -hmm. President Bush, you know, travel the world and do great things and be in a in a in a, in a location that was um, a part of American history. Mm -hmm. Um, I cherish that as much as the things that I've personally done, mm -hmm. you know, the people I've been with and the events that I was a part of. That's awesome. Guys, it's been super fun today. Um, I just want to thank you guys for inviting thank me up you. and want to just uh, give you encouragement for you guys have already recorded some podcasts and I'm so looking forward to watching you guys succeed and have fun with it. And, and uh, there's so much real you know, going on with what you're doing. There's so much realism and, you know, you can tell you're both passionate about it. So it's awesome. And it's going to be exciting to see you guys flourish in yet another um, arena. And I uh, just want you to know that I'm here to help you guys and, and anything I can do to, to help you guys uh, for sure. Uh, any technical advice on the equipment or what have you. Um, but it's, super cool to kind of build a new friendship and a new bond of you know all the things that we like to do and um yeah it was it was super cool to get the the uh instagram message from you and yeah and um now i feel like i've made two new friends so well, we'll, be, we'll be talking about those landowner tags here shortly yeah for but sure. for sure our friendship will precede all that yeah we'll, we'll push the pause button and get into the landowner tags but no i think um why wouldn't you try and take some more opportunity and, and give yourself some better opportunity at some better hunts and, you know, hunt some of these public land units where you can buy landowner tags and, you know, go every year and have, you know, your hunt planned out and do your OTC and do your landowner. And, um, you know, you've worked hard and, and should put yourself in a position to have more, ch more shots. Yeah, right. for sure. You know? So well, it's going to be great, uh, you know, cultivating this relationship for and, sure and, and friendship and getting you, to the woods and the river too yeah you guys will have to come down and play the little par three down there in basalt with me uh, that'd be fun that'd be that's, awesome that's my course right there they don't Love let it. me on the big boy course anymore <laughs> but uh uh yeah it was great uh just just enjoy uh just enjoyed hanging out with you guys yeah thanks for having yeah, us on us too thank you sounds good god You've bless been you an both. inspiration for a couple of years now it's uh we're together well good sounds good we'll Next time we'll blow some elk calls. For sure. All right. Thanks, Thanks Jay. Okay.